Um, Today's scripture is from Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35, I believe. So if you want to turn there and read with me. Uh, Again, Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called that servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Amen. There is an older couple, and like most couples over the years, they had their disagreements and their arguments. And in this one particular argument, The husband was getting all riled up, as he usually did, and his wife was sitting there calmly, as she always did. And he finally said to her, he said, I don't understand. He said, every time we get in an argument, you sit there so calmly. What's going on? What is your secret? And she said, well, after we argue, I just go clean the bathrooms. He said, what does the bathroom have to do with our arguments? And she said, well, she said, I go into the bathroom, I pick up your toothbrush, I go to clean the toilet, and then I go and I rinse it and put it back. Ah, ooh, anger can cause us to do some nasty things, can't it? You know, anger in itself is not a sin. But what we do in our anger can lead to sin. James tells us in chapter 1, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We've been in a series called Give It Up. And in the season of Lent, we often look for something to give up as a way to draw us closer to God. The idea is that we give up something that we enjoy. Maybe some way we'll understand that small sacrifice. And then we'll learn to depend more on God. 
But what we've been proposing over the last couple of weeks is that maybe we should look at the actions that seem just natural to us. Maybe we should give those up. The things that are harder for us to let go of. The things that God might want us to get rid of. Because if we could get rid of those, it would change our life. We've looked at giving up our hopelessness. We've looked at giving up our expectations. And last week, Jay delivered a message on giving up our control. This morning, we're not actually looking at giving up our anger. Because anger is a God-given emotion. What we're going to look at is giving up the things that anger can lead to. Bitterness. Grudges. Because if we give up our bitterness, if we give up grudges, we can then replace them with peace and forgiveness. But we like to hold on to our hurts. We like to hold on to the wrongs done to us. Because in some strange way, we think it makes us feel better. I'm going to hold tight because I feel better when I do. Karen, who is 65, is still very angry at her ex-boyfriend. He asked out her best friend on a date just a few days after breaking up with Karen. This was her high school boyfriend. Paul, 45, he can't forgive his sister because as he sees it, she treated him like he didn't matter when they were little kids. Shelley talks about her resentment towards her mother, whom she is convinced loved, loved her brother more than her. While her relationship with her mother eventually changed and offered Shelley a feeling of being loved enough, the bitterness about not being her mother's favorite stayed. These are not isolated examples. Many of us hold on to grudges. We hold on to deep hurts that last a lifetime. We hold on to them because our hurts and our grudges, they give us an identity. You see, with our grudge intact, we're able to hold on to an identity of a person who was wronged. And there's sort of a rightness and a strength in that identity for us. We use this victimhood. We use bitterness to give us a sense of solidness and purpose. To let go of our grudge, we have to be willing to let go of our identity as the one who was wronged. And we have to let go of whatever strength or sympathy that we receive through that wronged identity. We have to be willing to drop the I who was mistreated and step into the new version of ourselves, the identity that Jesus has for us. You see, in the Old Testament, God had given the following commandment to the Israelites. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he said. You see, God concluded that command. I am the Lord. 
It's a reminder that he's in control. When we hold on to a grudge, we're not only claiming that as our identity, we're claiming ourselves to be the judge and jury. That's God's job. Paul reminds us in the book of Romans what the Lord says. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. The Lord is in control, not us. And when the Lord finishes his command with, I am the Lord, it's a reminder that he holds our identity. Don't forget, I am your father. You are to be like me. You see, when we hold on to a grudge, we're strengthening our identity as the one who was wronged. And within that identity is an attempt to get the comfort and compassion that we didn't get in the past. We want to know that our suffering matters. Someone, please know that I was hurt. Someone, please take notice. That person hurt me and no one cares. That's what our grudges are all about. As a person who is victimized, our grudge is an announcement that we deserve extra kindness. We deserve some special treatment. Our indignation and that anger is a cry to be cared about. The problem is, they don't serve the purpose that we think they do. They don't make us feel better. They don't heal our hurts. We simply end up as proud owners of our grudges without the comfort that we're so desperate for. What we do is we hold those grudges out here as badges of honor. We use them as a way to remind ourselves and others about our pain. But all our bitterness and our grudges serve to do is block out the grace and mercy of Jesus. The mercy and grace of Jesus can't reach our heart. That's the true obstacle of our healing. You see, our identity is not in the one who hurt us. Our identity is in Jesus. He is the one who gives us value. He is the one who gives us worth. And he tells us that our pain matters so that we can release it. So that we can move towards forgiveness and peace. But to let go of a grudge, to travel that path of forgiveness, we must learn to take our focus off the one who hurt us. We must take our focus off of our pain. And we must learn to focus on the one who created us, the one who holds our identity, the one who has forgiven us much and given us grace and mercy. And only when we focus on Jesus can we find the compassion and the healing that our grudge needs to go away. 
Jesus is all too familiar with pain. He's all too familiar with suffering. He knows that our pain and our suffering matters. But it's only through Jesus that we can begin to forgive. That's what we see in our text this morning. The parable of the unforgiving debtor is used to answer Peter's question. Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often should I forgive someone when they sin against me? Seven times? You know, Peter doesn't even wait for Jesus to answer it. How about, how about seven times, Jesus? How about, that sounds good. Because the rabbis of that time, they were preaching that it wasn't necessary to forgive more than three times. It was based on Amos chapter 1 where God forgives his enemies three times. And then he punishes them. So by offering forgiveness more than double that of the Old Testament plus one, Peter thinks he's doing pretty good. And from a human standpoint, he really is doing pretty good. You know, we get frustrated if we have to forgive somebody twice. And here he is seven times, Lord, seven But that's what we want. We want a number. We want a limit. How long do I have to forgive before I can say enough is enough? No more Mr. Nice Guy. That's it. I'm done. That's not the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus replies, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven times. 490 times. That is far beyond that which Peter was proposing. It must have stunned the disciples. Although they had been with Jesus for some time, they were still thinking in limited terms of the law rather than in the unlimited terms of grace. By saying that we're to forgive those who sin against us who hurt us 70 times, seven times. Jesus was not limiting forgiveness to just 490 times. You know, although that number, for all intensive purposes, is beyond counting. Who wants to count up to 490 times? You don't. But the point is that we're supposed to forgive and forgive and forgive. We're not to limit the number of times that we forgive. Christians are to forgive with as much grace the thousandth time as they do the first time. But we're only capable of that kind of forgiveness because of the Spirit of God in us. It's He who provides the ability to offer forgiveness over and over just as he forgives us over and over. But letting go of our grudges and forgiveness, yes, you should forgive. Yes, you need to let go of that grudge. Sounds good, right? C.S. Lewis says it always sounds good. Forgiveness is always a great idea until you have something to forgive. Then it's not so easy. In our text this morning, this parable of the unforgiving servant follows directly after 
Jesus' 70 times 7 proposal. The point is that we have been forgiven an enormous debt of sin against God. How much more should we be eager to forgive those who sin against us, who are just as sinful as we are? Paul reminds us in the letter to the Ephesians, the same message. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. He admonishes us to forgive one another, even as God through Christ has forgiven you. Clearly, forgiveness is not to be given out in a limited fashion, but it's to be abundant, overflowing, available to all, just as the measureless grace of God is poured out on us. That's what our parable is all about. Here is this king who is collecting on his debts from all of the people who had borrowed money from him. And then before him comes a man that owes him millions upon millions of dollars. And he's flat broke. He has spent it all. He has nothing left. So the king says, sell his wife, sell his kids, sell his house. And while you're at it, sell him. Not that this man was worth anything monetarily. But the king just wanted to get back whatever he could. And then at that point, the servant does what any of us would have done. Verse 26 tells us he fell to his knees and he begged, Be patient with me. I will pay back everything. He knew this was no time for excuses. He realizes the severity and the desperation in his situation. And so he begs and he begs. He even makes the ridiculous promise to pay him back. That was impossible. He couldn't pay it back if he lived a million years. But somehow, his pleading touches the king's heart. The Bible says the king had pity on the man. Some translations say that the king was moved with compassion. And then he does something that the man didn't even ask for. The king not only releases him, he forgives the debt. He wipes the slate clean. He erases the book. He cancels the debt. Now the man owes him Nothing. That's the miracle in the story. The king forgives an enormous debt. This unbelievable amount of money is no more owed. And the man walks away scot-free. But as he walked away from the king, just as he left the palace... He happened to spot out the corner of his eye a man who owed him money. It says it was $1,000. Some translations break it down to mere pennies on the dollar. Just a pittance. 
nothing compared to the millions upon millions that he had owed. And it says he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And then verse 29 is almost a word-for-word replay of verse 26. Only this time, everything is reversed. What the first man had said to the king in begging for patience, the second man now says to him. The man with the great debt now has the upper hand. And his friend owes him just a few bucks. And he's begging for mercy. But there's one difference. The servant wouldn't forgive this little debt. Verse 30 says he had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. But someone saw it happen. Someone who knew what the king had just done to him. So word got around. Soon everybody's talking about it. It wasn't the fact that the servant would not forgive his friend that shocked the people. It was that he was so unforgiving after he had just found such mercy himself. So then this story, it makes it back to the king, and he gets mad. He sends out his soldiers, and they haul the man in. This time, there will be no mercy. From verse 32, the king called in the man he had forgiven, and he said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. The king had forgiven the man a million-dollar debt, forgiven him when he could have enslaved him for life, forgiven him when he was flat broke, forgiven him when by every law in the land he could have destroyed him. The man who deserved punishment instead found mercy. Shouldn't that forgiven man have done the same for somebody who owed him just a few dollars in comparison? So the king sent him to prison to be tortured. And Jesus finishes his story with, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Jesus said, what happened to that man will happen to you unless you learn to forgive and forgive and forgive. If you don't learn to forgive, you will be imprisoned and tortured. But church, close attention, pay close attention. This prison This torture is self-inflicted. God does not do it to us. We do it to ourselves. When we hold on to our grudges, we are tortured by our own bitterness that eats us up inside. 
It's the torture of frustrations and malice that gives us ulcers. It gives us high blood pressure and all kinds of health issues. It's the torture of anxiety and worry that keeps us up at night, just stewing over all the things that have been happening to us. It's the torture of an unforgiving heart that robs us each day of its joy. When we choose to hold on to our grudges, when we withhold forgiveness, we imprison ourselves. We torture ourselves. We are the unforgiving servant. You see, this story has so many truths in it. First, we see the greatness of God's forgiveness in us. We see the enormity of our own sin before a holy and righteous God. We see the relative lightness of the sins of others against us. We see the simplicity of forgiveness. And we see the danger of an unforgiving spirit. You see, like the unforgiving servant, we stand before Almighty God with our sins. They're piled up like a mountain. They're so tall we can't get over it. They're so deep, we can't get under it, and they're so wide, we can't get around it. That's every one of us. Our sins are like a million-dollar debt that we could never pay in our lifetimes or a thousand lifetimes. We come as debtors to God. We come with empty hands to the Lord and say, I can't pay. And God, who is so rich in mercy, says, I forgive all your sins. My son has paid the debt. You owe me nothing. And we hear that message. Every Sunday we hear that message. And then we rise up from our pews. We walk out to our cars. On the way home, we're humming, how great is our God, or Jesus paid it all. But before we pull in our driveway, we see someone who has done us wrong. And we want to go up, we want to grab them by the throat and say, pay me now. Every one of us in here does it. Don't tell me you don't. You're human. We all do it. But it's no wonder we're so tormented. It's no wonder that we're so angry and so bitter. No wonder we have problems. We have issues. Every one of us has issues. No wonder our friendships don't last. No wonder we don't get along with others. We've never learned the secret of unlimited forgiveness. Pastor, you don't know what that person did to me. You have no idea how much they hurt me. You're right, I don't. I don't know. But Jesus does. But I know that the grudges and the bitterness that you hold is hurting you, not them. And you can choose to let it go. Or you can choose to hold it tight. 
I pray that you desire to give it up. We often hear, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. There's a big difference between remembering something that hurts you and dwelling on it. See, only God can completely forget what he chooses to forget. Hebrews 10, 17 says, I will never again remember their seed, their sins, and lawless deeds. Only God can completely forget. We cannot. We may never forget the hurt. But forgiveness means that we don't dwell on it. If we choose to dwell upon the hurts of the past, and if we choose to let the past dominate the present, so that all of our relationships are negatively colored by what happened in the past, then we're not forgiven. In one of her writings, author Koi Ten Boom, who was one of the, uh, the Nazi concentration camp survivors, as a little girl, she was in a Nazi concentration camp. And when she became an adult, she traveled the world talking about the goodness of Jesus. But there was one thing that she had written, and I want to share it with you. She tells a story of some Christian friends who had wronged her in public and in a very malicious way. For many days, she was bitter and angry until she forgave them. But in the night, she would wake up thinking about what they had done, and she would get angry all over again. It seemed the memory would not go away. But help came in the form of a Lutheran pastor to whom she confessed her frustration. He told her, come up in the church tower. There's a bell, which is rung by pulling a rope. And when the bell ringer pulls the rope, the bell rings out a ding-dong sound. But what happens if he doesn't pull the rope again? Slowly, the sound is going to fade away. Forgiveness is just like that. When we forgive someone, we take our hand off the rope. But if we keep tugging on it and tugging on it, then we shouldn't be surprised if the old angry thoughts keep coming up for a while. They're going to keep ding-donging and ding-donging until we release the rope, and then eventually they'll fade away. When you forgive, you need to let go of the rope. When we let go of the rope, the force is gone out of our bitterness. You see, forgiveness is God's means of letting go of the past. It's his way of moving forward us with him. Forgiveness is simple, but it doesn't mean it's easy. If you've been deeply hurt, nothing will be harder than letting go. But the message of our text is clear. Unless you let go of the past, you're doomed to live there. You will just stay there. You need to forgive those who have hurt you, not for their sake, but for yours. 
You see, we don't forgive because we hope that by nursing our grudges, by nursing our bitterness, we can somehow strike a blow for justice. Somehow, if I'm holding on to this grudge and I'm telling others about it, it's going to hurt them eventually. Somehow. The only one that gets hurt is us. They almost end up winning twice. Once for the initial hurt. And then when you sit there stewing in the juices of your pain, they win again over and over and over. That's why Jesus' parable must be understood not as 490 times, but a continual forgiveness, unlimited, the kind that you practice over and over and over again. Don't think about forgiveness as being some favor for someone else. Don't just do it so that someone else will think well of you. There are only two reasons to forgive. Because God commanded it. It's not optional in the life of a Christian. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must learn to forgive and forgive and forgive. Just as God forgave you, freely, completely, graciously, totally. The miracle that we've received is a miracle that we're supposed to be spreading around. You see, we only forgive to the extent of how much we appreciate how much we've been forgiven. The best motivation to forgiveness is remembering how much God has already forgiven you. Think of how many sins he has covered for you. Think of the punishment you deserved but you didn't get because of God's grace. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven little loves little. Your willingness to forgive is in direct proportion to your remembrance of how much you've been forgiven. We forgive because it's good for our soul. You're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. Who was on the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's our example of forgiveness. You will never be set free until you learn to forgive. Release the grudges. Release the bitterness. Release the hurt and the pain. Then you will feel free. We needed this message today. Some of you have been living for years under the burden of remembered hurts. Some of the things that may bother us go back years and years. Some with people we don't even have contact with anymore, but the hurt is still there. 
But we need to learn to let go of the rope. We need to learn to forgive. We need to be great forgivers. Because forgiveness, it saves marriages. It restores relationships. It heals broken hearts. Forgiveness is the key that can open a closed heart. Forgiveness softens hardened hearts. What is needed is a revival of forgiveness. It needs to start today. Some of us need to take a trip out to the cemetery of forgiveness. We need to make a list of all the faults and all the sins and all the failures of everyone else around us. Dig a hole and bury it, never to be brought up again. It's time to give up our grudges. It's time to give up our bitterness and forgive. Some of you have a great sense of a need for your sins to be forgiven. That's why Jesus came. We need mercy from the king. When you turn to Jesus, in that one shining moment, all your sins will be forgiven. Some of you may not need the forgiveness as much as you need to forgive someone else today. Maybe that means writing a letter making a phone call, arranging a coffee date with someone. But whatever it is, let go of that rope. Give up your grudges. Start to forgive. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence with us this morning. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that strengthens us, that encourages us. Father, as we leave this place, may your word go deep into our soul. Open our eyes to see the ropes that we're holding. Open our eyes to see the hurts that we're still holding on to. Father, remind us of what we've been forgiven so that our hearts will soften towards those that we need to forgive. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.